This is chapter 173 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we travel first to the final frontier with best-selling author Patricia Cornwell. Then we travel back in time with historical fiction novelist Jennifer Robson. Number one New York Times bestselling author Patricia Cornwell is probably best known for her long-running series featuring Chief Medical Examiner Dr. K. Scarpetta. But what would a 21st century version of her fan-favorite heroine be like? Enter Captain Callie Chase, a NASA test pilot, quantum physicist, and cybercrime investigator who is just as fearless and whip-smart as her predecessor. I recently had a chance to chat with Patricia about Spin, the second novel in her Captain Chase series. Tell us what readers can expect without giving too much away. Well, in Spin, now, and it's true that it takes up where Quantum left off the last book, but you don't really need to know any of that because when when Spin begins, you figure out pretty fast what's going on. And basically what's happening is Captain Chase is leaving Mission Control at NASA Langley finally to go home in the middle of a nor'easter, you know, after the, a rocket has been sabotaged and blown up and, and um, uh, Houston has lost communication with astronauts on a spacewalk. And it's all from a huge hacking um, situation, which, by the way, is not so different than what's going on in this country right now. And so she's on her way home, finally. She lives on a little farm with her NASA parents, and she has an identical twin sister, Karma, who's missing, a military fighter pilot. As Callie's driving home, you know, no, nothing unusual going on, but there's it's snowy and there's no one around. There's been an evacuation. There's a government furlough. So uh, it's very, very isolative, which is very similar to how we're all feeling these days. And lo and behold, something weird happens to her NASA pickup truck. It, it, it turns off and then it turns back on and, and it's giving her an address in the navigation system, directing her to a certain place on the Chesapeake Bay. And she doesn't know if this is her missing identical twin who's trying to communicate with her and get her to meet her somewhere, or is it an enemy, a setup? And you'll find out when you get where you're going. But this is where it, the, the whole point of all this is, is these two twins were, from the time they were born, they're part of something called the Gemini Project, which Gemini is Latin for twins. And they're basically being groomed over the decades to be the, the eventual guardians of space that we're talking about today with, with Space Force, with astronauts in the military, and also private sector people combining their resources as we continue to not only explore space, but most of all, to protect our planet, because we are all after the same resources out there. And, and, and so whether it's the UK or the United States or Europe or Russia or China, you know, everybody is fighting over the moon and Mars and beyond and satellite control. And the, I think people will be quite amazed if they take a spin with my book, Spin, to see the sorts of things, um, the realities that are out there that they might not think about in their, their day to day. And I think they'll find it quite interesting. I know I was floored by some of the technology that you show us in this book. I'm sure a lot of it is in the works. I'm sure a lot of it is is also, you know, in the very, very early stages. And I'm curious, what first drew you to to write about space and and this part of, I guess, our inevitable future? Well, you know, somebody asked me 
uh, about four years ago when I thought maybe I wouldn't write any more Scarpetta books and I wanted to take a break and do something different. And someone said, well, if you were going to basically be creating kind of a hero like this today, you know, who would it be or what would it be? And I thought, I don't know, but the first place I'd go, I think, was NASA. I'd want to explore the latest technological advancements because what a lot of people may not realize is the reason I was drawn to the morgue to begin with in 1984, the first time I stepped foot in one, is that the person giving me a tour started talking about using lasers to find evidence on bodies and something called DNA that was coming down the pike. And I went, wow, using science to try to get secrets to be, you know, to be revealed, because that's really what we're talking about, whether it's space or forensics. And you're going to have forensics in space, by the way, that's already good. It's for sure going to happen if it isn't already. But it's what it says to us. It's the secrets it reveals about like either who did it or why did this person die? Or if it's space, what, what does this science mean to our life here on Earth? And what does it mean about who we are? And the more we find out, like, you know, truly we're made of stardust, the more we figure out that um, about what, what composes us and where we might have come from, the more we may get ideas about who and what we really are that go way beyond what we already know. So it's not just about showing buddy, somebody cool technology. This is about finding your own reflection up there. Who are we and why does this matter to us? And believe me, it does. You're known for your meticulous, hands-on approach to research. Anyone who follows you on Twitter have has seen some of the cool things that you've been able to do and see. What was your favorite part about researching quantum and spin? Well, all of it was really hard. And, and I will just preface it by saying that some of it that looks really cool is also nerve-wracking. Well, my favorite thing is flying the helicopter and at the NASA Langley hangar. I really did enjoy that. But in terms of actual space technology, I think that the virtual reality, um, the simulations that NASA does to teach their astronauts what it's like to be in space before they ever get there, they have to learn how to be spacewalkers and live in space before they actually ever go. So that all has to be done through virtual reality and simulation. And being put through a number of things like that at Johnson Space Center, it made me feel like I'd been up there. It was it was dizzying. It was I've never forgotten it. I mean it changed me in a weird way. When they're simulating that you're out there on a spacewalk and you're looking down and seeing Earth and you're seeing the space station and it, it's all knitted together from real footage. You, it, I cannot begin to tell you what an incredible experience that was. And I, I became just enamored. I thought, I, why does this mean so much to us? Why do we want to explore? Who are we? What, what, why does this matter? And the more I've dug into it, the more intrigued I've become. You are quite the daredevil. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you just do what you got to do. I'm, look, uh, I, it's, I'm not necessarily good at any of it, but it's, I've tried to learn um, as a journalist, really, so that I can tell the story. That's really the point. It's not. And, and I, I am just good enough to be able to figure it out so I can make it really good when I tell it to you. I love that. I love that you bring up the journalism aspect. You know, as, as someone who works in, in news radio, I understand yes. that. And, you know, there are things that we do to bring people the authentic story. And that's exactly what you're doing. And I love that more and more journalists are actually going out I mean, getting involved in things, you know, what we call sort of the method acting way of learning, you know, go out and try it on for size. And um, I learned that from being a journalist. That's how I started my career after college. And it was the best education I could ever have of going out there and learning how to talk to people, to get information, to find stories, 
to to hone your skills at recognizing stories and then what you do to capture it and bring it in and enamor everybody with it. Uh, so, yes, journalism is I, I really am just still a journalist in many ways. I just write very long stories. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of trying things on for size, you feature some extreme personal tech in this book. I, I won't give any details away. How comfortable are you with that idea? And would you ever want to have what Callie has in your own real life? Oh, that's a scary one. Yes, the whole notion of having sensors implanted in your body, and including in your brain, and they're already doing this, and, and there'll be more and more of it. Um, you know, maybe at some point, if I knew it were something like, let's just say, look, let's talk about chemical changes, like if you're diabetic or women going through menopause and these awful things where your chemistry changes dramatically in ways that's most unfortunate. And what if you had sensors or things that could tweak chemistry and help alleviate some of these problems? I think that would be superb. Um, And I would be all for that as long as, you know, it's been tested and we know how safe it might be. But be reminded, every device is hackable. And this is what gets scary. And when you, if with Cali and Karma having this uh, systemic injectable network of sensors um, that are supposed to be more compatible with what they're going to be doing um, in space and in their various missions, plus they're constantly uploading and downloading data and and all these things that that I describe in the book. The problem with that, people can do it now. Someone could hack into your pacemaker if they have the password, you know, if they could break into whatever that file is, that account. So with these devices comes that danger. That's the whole notion of cyber ninjas, those who work in the invisible world trying to deal with these kinds of dangers. I also thought if we thought people were distracted driving now, wait until this tech comes. Well, you know what? We're already learning how to multitask in ways we never have before. And yes, the distractibility is a really big problem, but people are also getting better multitasking because our brains are getting rewired. Our DNA is changing as we are evolving as as humans. Um, with and with technology we continue to change. And all of it is the machine and the and, and the human um, becoming more compatible with each other. When you're talking about artificial intelligence, implanted devices or the things that Elon Musk talks about with that eventually, you know, like Google, you'll be thinking thoughts i mean google will be in your brain so to speak all these things that seem so absurd but they're not so we need to be thinking about all of that because it's happening and if we want an idea of what it might look like your book is the perfect place to start well it's fun and it's not mind withering like it might sound it has a lot of devices but i do want um you know that but a lot of it is a little bit campy i mean (laughs) your your villain the same one that's in quantum dr wrong uh, you should get a cue from the name R-O-N-G that I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek. I mean, most of all, this is supposed to be, you'll learn a lot, but it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be thrilling, exciting, make you laugh at times, make you scared, um, and take you away from everything else and let you think bigger thoughts. And maybe your imagination will uh, seize upon some of these things I show you and who knows what you'll do with them. Now, before I let you go, I know you mentioned that uh, Callie Chase came about when you were thinking about maybe not writing any more Scarpetta books, but is it true that she might be making a comeback? It is definitely true. That's one of the things that's come out of this pandemic is Ben got delayed 
had some more time on my hands and I thought, you know what? I wonder what Scarpetta would have to say about the world right now. And what would she do if she lived in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington? And, and one thing led to another. And yes, I am this very minute writing the next Scarpetta book and it will be out this year, November 30th. Excellent. And, and is there a pandemic focus? Um, it's not focused, but it's definitely present and things, decisions that have changed the lives of those characters. Some of them have to do with the pandemic. They're the result of it. So they are in the throes of the post pandemic stage of life, wherever we will be um, when it gets to be Thanksgiving of this year again. God, that's this seems so long off, but as we know from the year that we've lived, it also is going to come up right, right behind us. So crazy, isn't it? I mean, every day, time just, I, I, it's hard to have any sense of time anymore. Until then, though, readers can pick up spin, catch up with what Captain Callie Chase is up to. Patricia Cornwall, thank you for spending so much time with me this morning to talk about your new book, Spin. Well, thank you. Every family has those stories about long-gone relatives that they tell and retell without really knowing how much is truth and how much is fiction. Author Jennifer Robson was visiting family in Italy when she overheard such a story about her husband's grandfather's actions during World War II. The rest, to borrow a phrase, is historical fiction. I chatted with Jennifer about the personal journey she embarked on while writing Our Darkest Night. Tell us about the question from your son that led to the writing of this book. I had just handed in the kind of final draft that was going to be the gown. And I was considering what I was going to do next. And I'd also been working on another book that I planned to to set in Golden Age Hollywood. And it just wasn't calling to me. And just at that moment of indecision that I had, uh, my son, who then would have been, I think, 14 or so, uh, came to me and he'd been studying the Second World War in school. And he asked me if the stories about um, his dad's uh, Nona and Nono, his, you know, his great grandparents, were true. And what he was asking about was that it, it had been a fairly recent discovery of ours that we believe my husband's grandparents were involved in helping to uh, shelter uh, Jews, fellow Italians. Uh, from the Nazis during the Nazi occupation of Italy in World War II. So, you know, I remember the moment that we discovered that it was, uh, we were, my husband and I were visiting his family in Northern Italy in 2016. And we were making the rounds of all the the aunts and uncles, the Z, as we call them. And we were visiting Zia Maria. And I think I must have been on my fourth or fifth espresso of the day, which is considerably higher uh, uh, amount of coffee than I usually um, have. And so maybe I was extra alert uh, because I don't speak dialect, the dialect, uh, uh, the Venetian dialect that they speak uh, very well and Italian not well at all. But I remember hearing the word ebre, which I knew uh, meant uh, Jewish. And and I remember tugging at my husband's sleeve, kind of saying, what is Zia saying? What is Zia saying? And then she said, Tonono i Gasconti, which means uh, your no-no, he hid them. And I, it's almost as if I can divide 
everything uh, into a before and after in terms of that moment. Um, Because what we learned uh, fairly quickly um, was that Sanzanone Dele Itzimini, where my husband's family is from, which is about, uh, you know, uh, uh, 80 kilometers or so as a crow flies um, from Venice uh, northwest. Uh, to San Zanone. Um, it's, just, it's in the shadow of Monte Grappa uh, in in the north of Italy, obviously. And um, during the war, uh, it was a hotbed of resistance activity. And that activity was led um, by a local priest, they're, they're the pastor at the main church, uh, who was called Father Odo Stocco. What he did is he coordinated um, uh, the hiding of dozens and dozens of people in the homes of his parishioners. Uh, And we believe that my husband's grandparents were among those who helped. Um, I can't prove it. I have to be honest. Too much time has passed. They've both passed away. And all but their youngest children have passed away. But I know that Father Stoko acted as he did because in 2010, he was named Righteous Among the Nations by Yad Vashem. So, whether or not my family is a part of it, in some ways, is beside the point to me at this stage. I mean, it would be lovely to know, and I, I believe it's true. But um, what matters is that this happened—that this small town, uh, barely more than a village—that the people there rallied round to help strangers at a tremendous risk to themselves. And learning that story led me to the creation of Our Darkest Night. Your story doesn't feature any real historical figures or actual stories from from victims and survivors. And uh, you write in your author's note that it's an approach described as vicarious witnessing. Why was Mm -hmm. it important to write Our Darkest Night in that way? I feel really strongly that, you know, when we're dealing with figures that are as high as we see with the Shoah, with the Holocaust, when we're looking at numbers like 6 million people who are murdered, those figures can be numbing. And I think with those, with those numbing um, numbers, we can, we can start to forget that each person who was killed was they were a universe unto themselves, you know, of of thoughts, of feelings, of emotions, of experiences. And each one of those people mattered. And so I was really reluctant to, in any way, subsume the truth of anyone's life in this instance uh, into my fiction. And what I sought to do instead was to find places uh, in the history, uh, and where there were were gaps in a way where I could add my heroine. Um, so wherever it was possible to add her to uh, what is known without taking away the presence of another person, that, that was my approach. And it might seem obsessive, admittedly. Uh, I certainly spent many hours figuring out how to do this. But I really felt it was important that I couldn't take away from anyone's story. You know, in a way, that's why I chose to write this book as fiction. I could have 
Uh, I'm a trained historian. I have a PhD from Oxford. I could have looked at it and said, well, I think I'm going to try writing a narrative history of what happened in San Zanone. And, you know, maybe that's that's a project for, for another time. But what called to me was the idea that I could create a heroine uh, and a place for her to go, which is fictitious. It's called Mezzocell. It's inspired by, you know, San Zanone itself and another very tiny village called Borso del Grappa, which is nearby um, and, and where I have relatives. And then I could create, you know, the, the people in this wonderful family, the Gerardi family, including Nico, who's the hero. Um, and there are elements of their lives that are drawn uh, from real life, but I wanted each of them to stand alone as their their own creation in my mind. And, you know, really the only person in the book who has a parallel in real life is Father Bernardi, uh, the priest in the book, who helps to arrange uh, Nina's uh, kind of rescue in a way. I really think Nina rescues herself, but he he arranges for her to come and stay in the countryside because he's a friend of, of, of Nina's father. He is is what I imagine Father Stoko would have been. What's interesting, I suspect in the months to come, I will be hearing from many people from San Zanone who, who did know Father Stoko. Uh, already I, I'm getting emails from people who say, well, I grew up in San Zanone and I remember him. So, you know, a year from now, I, I may have more stories to add. Do you think readers, or at least some readers, might be surprised to learn how many Italian Jews there were in Italy at the time of World War II? Because I think when people think of Italy, they think of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And the, the reality is that Italy had at the start of the war, uh, somewhere between, I, I think it was about between 44 and 45,000 Jews um, living mostly in the larger centers such as, as Rome, um, Venice, Milan, and so on. Um, and there were just under 68,000 uh, who were murdered uh, in, in the Holocaust, which, you know, compare as a proportion uh, of lives lost uh, as a figure, again, when we're setting it against these terrible, terrible death tolls from places like Poland and Hungary. It, it's it's not a large figure, although even saying that I, makes me uncomfortable because each one of those people mattered. And I never wanted to say, well, relatively speaking, it wasn't that many. It was, you know, almost 7,000 people. It's, it's just a terrible, terrible number. And, and when you look at what happened to Italy's Jewish communities, even though the, the death toll was not, again, into, say, the millions, for example, you know, these, these communities were centuries old. Uh, they were vibrant places. They were beautiful places where people had managed to find a way to exist, coexist alongside, you know, fellow Italians who were, who were devoutly Catholic, um, it, but they, you know, they'd managed to preserve their identity uh, through centuries of oppression. And really only starting in the late 19th century had some of the restrictions on Jews been lifted. And life had become a little more open, a little easier um, for Italian Jews. Of course, it became increasingly difficult under the fascist regime. 
and at the end of the 1930s, uh, a series of just disgusting um, anti-Semitic racial laws were enacted, uh, which were among the most punitive in Europe at the time. And so by the time the Nazis arrived in 1943 to, to start uh, their occupation, their official occupation of the country, you know, life was already very difficult for Italy's Jews. And then the arrest started, the deportation started. And from then on, uh, you know, it was, it was a nightmare that didn't end until well into 1945. So much was lost. It's so easy to slip into a conversation about the history that your book is steeped in, just because there's so much there and there's so many stories there. But I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the characters itself, because I think anybody who comes from a, an Italian family or maybe even you know a, Medi- a large Mediterranean family, you really capture the essence of what it of what family means, as well as the idea that strangers can be family and can be made into family. You know, I was reflecting on this the other night. I was talking with my beloved sister-in-law, who in no way resembles the character of Rosa. Um, There's not an ounce of grumpiness in her, let me put it that way. And I was saying to her, I've been part of um, uh, her family for more than 20 years now. And everyone was lovely to me when I, when I first showed up as, 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 Claudio's girlfriend initially. Um, but I was what, in, it, there's a term in Canada, uh, and I'm not sure if it stretches to the States as well, for, for, an, for somebody who isn't an Italian, which is manja cake, which is somebody who is very kind of white bread and uh, doesn't really understand what it is to be Italian. And, um, and I was very much a manja cake. And I had a lot of learning to do and a lot of growing to do to understand what was important to, to Claudia's family. Um, and I wonder if some of that made it into the book in terms of Nina's perspective of, of, of becoming part of this, this, this large, close, loving, uh, tight-knit family. Um, and I hope I've been able to portray just, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're the downside to, to being part of such a close family. Everybody's uh, in your face. Everybody knows your business. But the support is so wonderful. And the, the love is just, um, it's all-encompassing. And, uh, you know, when you, when you need help, when you need somebody on your side, you don't have to look very far. And that's what I wanted to, to show um, in, in this book when, when Nina, who, who just, you know, she's a city girl. She's an only child. She's lived a very quiet life. And then to be thrust into the middle of this loud, happy family, happy despite everything they're going through, um, to barely have enough to eat, they have to work from, uh, uh, you know, from dusk till, till the, you know, it's dark outside. Um, they're in constant danger, um, but they still manage to find joy in these really small things. And watching Nina be pulled into this family, um, and 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 I should add, in no way, I, I in no way um, is she pressured. Uh, to become Catholic, to abandon her faith. It was very important to me that uh, that Nina remain Jewish 
in her in her heart um, in her outlook uh, and so that never changes um, you know and and she's also I should say is that she is as Italian as the Gerardi family um, but she, what she really wants is is to find a place to call home and she finds it with these lovely people uh, who ask nothing of her really um, and uh, and there's a few shaky moments at the beginning with with uh, the woman who who uh, is effectively her sister-in-law, uh, but they soon become friends. And um, and I just I, I hope my love for my family is evident in this book. Um, it was just such a joy to to be able to capture some of that um, and capture some of what I've learned as the city girl who didn't really know much about vegetable gardening, for example, when I joined my husband's family and, and then I discovered, oh, oh, they, they took vegetable gardening, my late parents-in-law, they took it very seriously, um, along with the winemaking and the canning of, of tomatoes, all of that. And um, the eating of polenta? The eating of polenta, <laughs> which is my husband's favorite food. A lot of people may be shuddering as they listen to this, thinking, oh, polenta. There's such he, a debate um, between the northern Italians and the southern Italians about polenta. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, and the idea, like, polenta, for my friends from the south of Italy, they just shudder. Um, but, you know, northern Italian cooking, there there isn't a lot of, of you know, tomato-based sauces. Um uh, you know, one challenge is that there's a lot of pork involved. Um, but, you know, lard is kind of the central fat, more than olive oil, for example. And I had to, you know, include a mention of that uh, in terms of, you know, that gives Antonina real pause. And she and Nico figure out a way around the, the worst of it so that she doesn't, again, have to compromise uh, what's what's important to her. Um you know, it's it. It was just. It, it was. I hope. Well, I know, in fact, that my husband's family is delighted by the book, and and um, that that is that's in. You know, it, it it's been a tough year for a lot of people. I you know, and uh, um, for me, just one source of joy recently has been the, being able to share you know, this book with my family and for them to, to see one aspect of their lives portrayed in, in what I, I, I hope people will see as a, as a very loving manner. You know, I hope for you that what you mentioned earlier, that you're going to hear from people who maybe knew the characters uh, that you based the book on reach out to you, because I think to me that that would just be such validation to know that there was a story there that you follow through with with not even knowing the dialect and picking up a couple of words here and there. Yeah. And and just to see it come alive on the page for them and for you, I think that's got to be one of the greatest things as an author and a historian. It is. It is. And, you know, I mean, in all of this, I could not have written this book without my lovely husband, who's such a I'm getting a little choked up. He's such a dear man. And um, for him to share his family story with me, um, I, I'm so grateful. And uh, now he does tease me about my accent with the dialect. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, last night, cause there's a, the term for mulled wine uh, in Italian. I trip over constantly um, because 
I, the other language I speak fluently, actually fluently, is, is French in kind of good Canadian fashion. And I want to say vin brûlé, um, but that's entirely the wrong way to pronounce, <laughs> pronounce it. And it's more like, and now I have to steal myself to get it right, uh, vin brûlé uh, is closer. Although he's going to listen to this and just roll his <laughs> eyes and go, oh, Jen, that's not how you say it. You know, so Claudio was my translator. Uh, he he and his sister, Michaela, they, you know, they helped me, um, uh, you know, search through family records, um, look for photographs, uh, speak to the cousins uh, back in Italy. Uh, there are many, many, many cousins and second cousins. And um, in fact, in the last few days, we've had some long lost cousins who heard me uh, on Canadian radio and reached out, which has been lovely. Um, but it has been a true joy just exploring my own family history and being able ultimately to tell my children that I believe. And again, I always tell them I cannot prove it. I don't want to put, I couldn't swear to this in court, but I believe that to the best of my abilities as an historian, that their grandparents did what was right or their, their grandparents and their great grandparents specifically, that they did what was right at a time when it was very difficult to do what was right. And, you know, for me to have discovered this, uh, again, I, I can barely put into words what that means to us as a family. This book is is truly a labor of love, and I want to thank you for sharing the book with us as well as the backstory. It's really incredible, and the obvious love that you have for your family, for the history, it just, if anyone is unconvinced by this interview, then they're a lost cause. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your kind words. We've been talking sure. with Jennifer Robson. Her new book is Our Darkest Night. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to, to join you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we celebrate that February day that's all about love with a couple of books about love that aren't your typical romances. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.